Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. It's time for another Political Rewind. I'm Mill Nygut. As usual, thank you all so very much for giving up a little bit of your morning to be with us, or your afternoon, if you're listening to the rebroadcast of the show at uh, 2 o'clock. Um, I don't know where it—I don't know the weather across the state. I probably should have looked. But, boy, here in Atlanta, it's a bitter, rainy, awful day. Every now and then I think to myself, gee, I kind of miss Chicago winter weather. And then a day like today comes along, (laughs) and I wonder what I'm talking about. Um, There's a lot of uh, cold feelings in the air about politics uh, right now, too. Lots of uh, uh, people at odds within the Republican Party, particularly. Um, Also, uh, uh, some anger over a federal court decision by um, people in the Biden administration and some Democrats uh, a decision that uh, blocks another one of uh, President Biden's vaccine mandates. We're going to talk about all that and a lot more with our panel uh, today, starting with my Wednesday partner on the show, Greg Bluestein, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. How you doing, Bluestein? I'm great, Bill. I love the segue about weather to politics. It was brilliant. Okay, well, thank you very much for that. Um, We're also joined by uh, journalist Chart Riggle. He is a reporter for the Marietta Daily Journal. And uh, Chart, we're pleased to have uh, you with us. Um, I assume that your paper is going to really be embroiled in covering all the activity in the 6th District Congressional race, which is going to get pretty interesting in the months ahead. It will be um, either, you know, depending on how you look at it, uh, a lot of fun or a, a miserable time. But, you know, I'm, I'm opting for the former, at least for now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you here, Chart. Uh, professor Adrian Jones, professor of political science and director of the pre-law program at Morehouse College, is back with us. Adrian, you said classes are over for the semester, but you've got a stack of exams and papers still to plow through before you get vacation. Indeed. Um, there's quite a bit of work to go, even though the semester has wound down. Um, and we're looking forward to a little bit of a break. Well, thank you for joining us today. <clears throat> Excuse me. Alan Abramowitz doesn't have to worry about that sort of thing. I don't think right now, now that you are an emeritus professor, Alan Abramowitz, at Emory University, a long career as political science professor there and an author of a number of books on uh, politics in America. Uh, Alan, are you enjoying a much more relaxed end of the semester uh, uh, kind of feeling? Oh, I am, definitely. Uh, in fact, uh, Adrian just reminded me of uh, what I really disliked the most about having to teach every semester, <laughs> grading exams and papers. Yeah, I'm sure um, that's But I am, I am coming back to teach a class in the spring semester, so I'll have to get back into it then, um, teaching okay. a freshman seminar. Yeah. I did want to rem- okay. remind you, Bill, that the, the sun will come out tomorrow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for that, uh, Alan. Um, maybe by the end of the show, we'll get you to sing a little of that song. <laughs> um, all right, Greg Bluestein, let's get right to it. Um, 
You know, a number of court cases, federal cases, have set aside various aspects of the Biden vaccine mandates in different forms. And just yesterday, Judge Stan Baker, a U.S. District Court judge in the Southern District, issued an order uh, that stops the implementation of the Biden requirement that employees of federal contractors be vaccinated. That order was set to take effect pretty soon, and uh, it's not moving forward for the time being. Um, What's interesting about it, Greg, is we should point out that um, when this suit was brought, representatives from Georgia universities testified during a hearing that implementation of the mandate would be expensive, uh, cost them valuable employees who haven't yet presented proof that they've been vaccinated. Um, they were among uh, any other number of people who uh, said this was an onerous action by the uh, administration. The judge did not say that a vaccine mandate wouldn't be effective. But what he did say is that he believes it's overstepping the administration's authority. Greg? Yeah, exactly. And this is a conservative jurist. Um, This seems destined to go all the way up the ladder uh, to the Supreme Court. Uh, And this is something that, as as you mentioned earlier, that Republican officials celebrated the moment these the, the, this uh, the, these orders were announced by President Joe Biden, the moment <laughs> uh, Brian Kemp and Attorney General Chris Carr promised to file this litigation, it came a few weeks later after the uh, the order actually was was written and exe- executed. Um, and this is also all this has to be taken in the context of next year's tough re-election battle because you're going to see Chris Carr, Attorney General Carr, and Governor Kemp do everything they can. Um, to show that they are fighting uh, what they see as an overreach uh, of the federal government from, from Joe Biden. Alan, weigh in on this. Well, it's interesting to me that when, when you look at these decisions, we've seen a number of these sorts of uh, decisions issued by uh, judges, um, and uh, they've gone in different directions. Uh, and in, I believe in every single case, um, the outcome of the case, the decision made by the judge was predictable based on the party affiliation of the judge. Um, Judges appointed by Democratic presidents have upheld the mandates. Judges appointed by Republican presidents, in this case, a Trump appointee, have uh, overturned these mandates. So what we're seeing here is that the federal courts appear to be just as divided along party lines as Congress is, or you might say that the American people are as well. But we do know also that these mandates work. I mean, there's plenty, plenty of evidence now um, that mandates do uh, significantly increase the percentage of, uh, of people who are vaccinated. And that we also know that is the most effective defense against infection and disease, uh, with, and particularly now with the spread of this new variant. So the, the governor and the attorney general may be celebrating, but um, this probably means if it, if it holds that, that more Georgians will end up getting, getting sick and hospitalized and ultimately some will die from the coronavirus. Um, Adrian, uh, White House uh, spokesperson uh, Jim Psaki said this when the ruling came down. The reason that we proposed these requirements is that we know they work. 
and we are confident in our ability legally to make these happen across the country. Um, and she noted that in the federal government, which has a mandate in place, um, uh, because of that mandate, she says, 92% of its workers are now inoculated. I, I would imagine, and I don't have any data to compare it uh, with other uh, sectors of our economy, but I would imagine 92% inoculations in one sector of, of the country's workforce is a pretty staggering number. I mean, I agree. And I think it's very important that we get to those kinds of numbers. And I find it very difficult to believe that on appeal, um, it's not going to be possible to find power in the federal government to make stipulations about federal contracts, including making sure that people remain healthy so that they can work. I mean, I understand that people uh, need to work and they need to be out in the public, but um, to Dr. Um, Abramitz's point, if we're not alive, we certainly cannot work. Um, and I'm concerned about the globe as a whole and Georgia specifically. You know, Chart, um, we have not heard a statement, at least I haven't, Greg Bluestein, if I'm, if there's one out there, please correct me, from uh, uh, Chris Carr, who it was Georgia that led the seven states that, um, in this case, uh, uh, asked the judge to stop uh, the federal uh, uh, contractor mandate. But the, the governor of Idaho, which was part of the same group, said this, yet another one of President Biden's vaccine mandates have been temporarily shut down because the states, including Iowa, took a stand against his unprecedented, his unprecedented government overreach into Americans' lives and businesses. What we don't hear in these statements celebrating these stays, uh, Chris, is the next sentence which might be, yeah, we think it's overreach, but we sure want to continue to push for the people of our state to get vaccinated. Yeah, definitely. I, 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 it's not necessarily surprising that, um, you know, uh, Georgia, I, it, there's definitely been a, a consistent message uh, from a political electoral perspective from Republicans about the general theme of federal overreach uh in in the biden administration um what's what's interesting to me is that i i remember when the the mandate was first sort of rolled out a few months back and and talking with some of the businesses that would be affected by this uh lockheed martin for example in uh, Cobb, which is you know five thousand employees is obviously a huge federal contractor they were not exactly champing at the bit to uh get this uh, mandate in place you know they, they were not saying oh yeah we're gonna you know follow this to the letter they, they were sort of like we're gonna see how this plays out we're gonna continue as you say encouraging people to get vaccinated we're gonna provide those opportunities but not many folks i heard from were like okay great we're gonna i'm gonna start you know um sending people home who aren't vaccinated starting you know tomorrow so before we leave the subject, Greg, we should say that state public health director uh, uh, Kathleen Toomey has continued to encourage people uh, to get vaccinated. Um, I don't, it's going to be interesting, Greg, now that he's engaged in a primary campaign against David Perdue, which we're going to turn to in a minute, um, do we imagine that maybe the governor won't want to be quite as outspoken about need for people to get vaccinated. I realize that's completely speculative, 
But it's obviously, you know, pushing people to get vaccinated is not a popular issue among uh, the base right now. Yeah, I've been looking for a, t- a signal and, and tone change there, and I haven't seen any. I mean, just, just this week, Governor Kemp said, uh, encourage folks to go see their doctors to talk about the benefits of vaccination. So um, he hasn't changed his message there, but that, that's that been the overall message overall. But at the same time, he's been talking about concerns that small businesses would, would um, he's never he's never questioned the vaccine's efficacy, right? The, 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 the fact that it has definitely helped contain this outbreak. What he's done is he said he's worried that small business owners and and other folks just won't be able to continue their operations if they lose employees because of this vaccine mandate. So that, that's how he's cast it as sort of an economic development issue. Okay, thank you for that. Um, let's move on. Uh, Greg, while you've got the ball, let me uh, offer you this. You uh, posted a piece at AJC.com, the headline of which is, Get Ready for 2022, Georgia. It's going to be wild. And certainly... Uh, there have already been reasons to think it was going to be a wild year, but this entry of David Perdue into the governor's race the other day really, really ratchets up just how uh, crazy this year could become. I mean, think about it. It was just a week ago we were talking about Stacey Abrams ending the mystery and, and joining this race, and now we've got a re- brutal Republican primary that has even kind of pushed her, not off the headlines, but at least away from, from the center stage in a way that she has no doubt has no issue with, by the way, um, mm-hmm. to all talk about the Republican internal warfare. And that's just the top of the ticket, right? You've, you've, of course, none of us have forgotten that Senator Warnock is up for reelection against Republican frontrunner Herschel Walker, maybe. Um, you've got down ticket races, maybe the premier down ticket race in the entire nation, which is Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger fighting for another term. And then, of course, you've got a conflict on the Democratic side of the aisle, not nearly as as, as attention-grabbing as, as the Republican infighting, but you've got Carolyn Bordeaux Lucy McBath in the suburbs in a battle that can double as an ideological fight between centrists and liberals. So, And that's just the start. We haven't even gotten to Buckhead and and these ra- these issues of race and cult- culture and gender that will be dominating the legislative session. Alan, over the last couple of days on the show, we've we've talked pretty extensively about uh, the Purdue entry into the race. <clears throat> but I want to uh, uh, get you into this uh, conversation, and I'd like to do it through uh, reading a couple sentences of a Wall Street Journal editorial uh, that appeared <clears throat> uh, yesterday. Uh, whilst we know the Wall Street Journal editorial page is uh, notoriously very conservative, uh, but here's what they wrote under the headline, Trump's Georgia Vendetta, he stokes a GOP primary fight that may elect Stacey Abrams. <clears throat> For a glimpse of the long shadow Donald Trump may cast over the 2022 midterm elections, see former Senator David Perdue's Monday announcement He'll challenge Georgia Governor Brian Kemp in a Republican primary. This is a good way to turn a major state over to the progressive left. And they close the editorial by saying, Republicans are poised for major gains in 2022 as voters recoil against the Democratic Party's hard left turn. But the GOP's biggest obstacle will be party divisions stoked by Mr. Trump and candidates he supports not because they're better but because they hedge or obfuscate on whether he lost the election. Alan, 
Uh, that's exactly right. Um, I think what we're seeing here in Georgia with the entry of David Perdue uh, into the primary is just uh, one example of the kind of damage that Donald Trump could potentially do uh, in 2022 when it comes to uh, you know, try, trying to influence these Republican primaries and, and, and favoring certain candidates over others uh, and pushing candidates who uh, support his, uh, his uh, false claims that the election was, 2020 election was stolen. Um, so this, this could be potentially very damaging to Republican prospects. I think it's going to, in this case, force uh, both uh, Kemp and Purdue are going to have to focus their efforts uh, very heavily on appealing to the uh, very pro-Trump re Republican base here in Georgia uh, at the risk of alienating um, uh, a segment of the electorate who might be movable, or persuadable in a general election. Um, and it's going to allow Stacey Abrams to take the high road and just focus on, on the general election and appealing to a, a broader segment of the electorate. But we're seeing similar things happening in other states as well, where uh, candidates are uh, uh, competing uh, to appeal to uh, essentially Donald Trump. I mean, it's like there's a primary going on. If you look at what's happening in Ohio, if you look at what's happening in Pennsylvania right now uh, in their Senate races, trying to uh, essentially uh, get Donald Trump's endorsement. There's like a one-person primary uh, because they think that's the key to, to uh, winning their party's uh, nomination and appealing to the, to the, to the primary voters. Mm -hmm. um, Adrian? I find it very interesting that this is the moment at which the George, in Georgia, the Republican Party would choose to have two candidates for governor. Okay, first of all, we have Governor Kemp, he's the incumbent. Incumbents do well. Um, and it seems to me after 2020 in particular, that to attempt to split the GOP base over these two candidates could be a real problem <laughs> for us. Mm -hmm. uh, our Republicans in our state um, in the actual election. You know, it allows Stacey Abrams to um, galvanize her base, perhaps pull some of those um, disgruntled GOP voters over when, uh, if it's Purdue or Kemp doesn't make it through the primary. And so no, they're no longer um, feeling the um, affinity with the candidate anymore. We saw in the 2020 election where there was a real impact on voter turnout uh, for the president as a result of his complaints that voter fraud was rampant, which was simply untrue. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm just astounded that um, this would be a moment at which even the former president would have encouraged David Perdue to get into the race. And now we're going to get to see this um, mudslinging. Um, Chad, let me start with you on this, but I'd love to get everybody in, in, in the mix on this. It, you know, obviously, Democrats, Stacey Abrams, her campaign, will uh, make a case against Brian Kemp's record during his first term as governor. But Kemp at least has a record that he will proudly run on. He'll say he kept the economy moving forward in the middle of covid uh, he'll say they, he got raises uh, for teachers uh, for his base. He'll say, you know, we dealt with issues like abortion. Uh, we passed the hate crimes. I mean, he's got a lot of things he can say, for better or worse, 
are, are the rationale for why he seeks a second term. But Chart, and then everybody else, what exactly is David Perdue's case for entering this race? Now, maybe we'll hear more specifics, but so far, it seems to be l- looking at the past, the way in which uh, officials like Donald Trump, like Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger, refused to support Donald Trump's allegations of a, a, a rigged election in Georgia. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think a lot of it's going to come down to how short and in what ways, uh, how, how short people's memories are. Because, um, as you point out, you know, Brian Kemp's done a lot of things uh, that some of which have been you know, very much directed at the base, like, um, you know, the, the election bill, uh, the heartbeat, so-called heartbeat bill, um, you know, has, has, is suing over the vaccine mandate, um, you know, and, and as the governor's spokesperson pointed out, I mean, David Perdue is one, even though he was the highest vote getter of any candidate in the state in November, could not avoid a runoff against John Ossoff, uh, and ended up losing. Uh, and, I mean, uh, there's a lot of data to, to suggest that the reason that he and Kelly Leffler lost that race is because everyone was running around saying that they didn't do enough to support the president. And now he's, you know, less than a year later, he's he's now the president's candidate of choice. So I, I will be very curious to see how, you know, folks in, in the kind of activist GOP um, respond to this campaign and this announcement, because, I mean, so far, maybe not openly, but I've, I've seen some folks sort of tacitly supporting uh, Vernon Jones, um, who obviously uh, Donald Trump didn't think had, had the, the juice to bring it home. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. It'll be interesting. I, I thought it was also it was interesting that, that Purdue in his announcement video said, you know, this isn't personal. I, I like Brian Kemp. Um, so I. I don't know. It, it, that was that was a bit of a perplexing statement to me. Yeah, Greg. Yeah, I mean, D- David Perdue has to answer a, a lot of questions. Maybe one of the first is how he thinks he can be a uniter by challenging the sitting Republican governor, who has carved out a pretty conservative record, as we've talked about, including uh, the strictest anti-abortion uh, proposal measure that, that we've seen in Georgia history, and one of the strictest in the nation. Um, secondly, is what he means, what he would do uh, differently than Brian Kemp. And he keeps on saying that Brian Kemp caved. Um, we've, we've, we've pointed out repeatedly how that's a very questionable claim in the first place. But beyond all that, what would he have done differently than Brian Kemp did when, when faced with Donald Trump's false claims of widespread election fraud? Um, and thirdly, we don't know much of his agenda yet. And that's a very big part of it. And I, and I, I get there'll be six, seven months to start honing that out. But all we know is that from a few interviews and, and from his uh, opening statement that he wants to eliminate the state income tax. And as my colleague James Salzer pointed out this morning, that's $14 billion of revenue that you can't just you know, disappear without having some way to, to refill it. Uh, that's revenue that helps pave roads fund law enforcement officials, schools, the rest, right? So we don't know what he plans to do with that um, other than very broad platitudes about bolstering public education and, and, and giving parents choices and, and things like that. So we have a lot to learn about about where he goes going forward. Um, but uh, certainly Brian Kemp already has some meat on the bone because he's had four-plus years of the campaign and then three years he's been in office to sort of hone that out. 
I think it's pretty clear that the, the, the only reason David Perdue is in this race is that Donald Trump wanted him to get into the race to have, so that there would be a credible challenger to Brian Kemp. Uh, and the only real rationale that he's offering for entering the race and challenging Brian Kemp is that Brian Kemp, according to David Perdue, has lost the confidence of the Republican base in Georgia because he didn't do enough to stop uh, you know, uh, Joe Biden from winning the presidential election in, in, in Georgia. It's, it's a pretty preposterous claim. But the fact of the matter is that if Donald Trump, in fact, uh, endorses David Perdue, as everyone expects, and if he comes in and strongly uh, supports David Perdue, um, that could make this a very competitive race. I mean, we've already seen uh, one poll uh, that was put out, uh, I think, yesterday by um, Fox 5 News and Insider Advantage that showed that when Republican voters were told that uh, Donald Trump would be endorsing David Perdue, that uh, the result of that was a neck-and-neck -neck race, a tie between David Perdue and Brian Kemp. Uh, and that still was 10% of the vote going to Vernon Jones. Uh, presumably, the Vernon Jones vote uh, will uh, go eventually go overwhelmingly to Purdue. Um, it's an anti-Kemp, pro-Trump vote, uh, and it will either go to Purdue uh, in, in the first round of voting or in a runoff if there's a runoff, which is entirely possible. So it's going to be a All right. knockdown, dragout race. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, Alan. I got to get to a break. A uh, lot more to talk about um, in on the show today. And uh, in just a minute, let's talk about the uh, the new 7th District Democratic uh, race, which is shaping up to be uh, interesting as well. We'll be right back with more with our panel. Emory University's Alan Abramowitz, Adrian Jones, Morehouse College, Chart Riggle, Marietta Daily Journal, and Greg Bluestein of the AJC all here uh, today. Chart, let me give you a first shot at this, please. <clears throat> Excuse me. The uh, redistricting of the congressional map in Georgia has put Lucy McBath's 6th district seat in jeopardy for her, for a Democrat. Um, and so she's moving over to the 7th to take on Carolyn Bordeaux. And as I think it was Greg at the very beginning of the show who said it's not the same high profile uh, kind of intra-party uh, fight that we're seeing between Purdue and Kemp, but it is a significant uh, issue for Democrats to sort through. Absolutely. You know, uh, Greg mentioned that this might shake out to be a sort of moderate versus liberal race. Um, and, and I think looking at it right now, that's you can definitely draw that distinction between Bordeaux and McBath. Um, I'll be curious to see how that changes because I, I suspect that some of Bordeaux's more moderate leanings were based on how that district was drawn previously when she got elected last year. And so I wonder, you know, given that this is now going to be a solid blue district, uh, if she's going to shift to try and hold off some of that, um, that line of attack. Um, the other thing is, uh, you know, obviously the, the incumbents will have a big advantage in this race. Um, but, I mean, Lizzie McBath is, is not a lightweight by any means. I mean, she cruised to re-election last year. Uh, she's obviously very popular in the former 6th District. Um, 
I don't know how much of that will carry over into the the new seventh, uh, which is basically Gwinnett County. Um, but it, I, I do not anticipate it being uh, Carolyn Bordeaux easily holding off uh, a, a challenge from McBath. Um, Alan, one of the things we want to m- remember about this is, uh, yes, there's going to be a clash between McBath and Bordeaux, and we're going to pay attention to that. But we also don't want to neglect to point out that what Republicans in drawing this map have done is to essentially take a seat away from Democrats. They've expanded their majority in the Georgia House delegation. Exactly. Um, and, and clearly, the uh, I think the, the major goal Republicans had in mind in, in drawing the congressional map uh, was, in fact, to turn their current 8-6 uh, majority in the delegation in, into a 9-5 uh, majority, uh, and, and also to essentially eliminate the, the two uh, swing districts in the state, um, the only two competitive districts in the state, although I'm not sure what's going to happen to the second district. We have to also take a look at that. They made that district a little less less democratic. But uh, basically, we're going to now have a safe Democratic seventh district and now a safe Republican sixth district. Um, and uh, so the only choice that Lucy McBath had, I think, if she wants to stay in Congress, was to move into the seventh district race, and, and because the sixth district would have been unwinnable uh, for her. So now we're going to have this primary. The ideological divide between the two, I think, could easily be overstated, um, because if you look at their actual voting records, they're not that different. Um, however, I think Carolyn Bordeaux has been more visibly aligned with a centrist bloc uh, in, in the House, a member of that group of nine, uh, a member of the Problem Solvers Caucus. Lucy McBath did not uh, join in with that. Uh, Lucy McBath also might have the advantage in that she is associated with an issue that's very popular with Democratic primary voters, which is the issue of gun control. Uh, And I think she's very well known for that, even outside of her own district. I'm not sure that Carolyn Bordeaux has that kind of appeal on any particular issue. So she's a very strong campaigner, very strong fundraiser. It's going to be, I think, a very competitive race. Uh, but I think Lucy McBath has that advantage of uh, being known for her strong support for gun control, which is something that will resonate with Democratic primary voters. Adrian, I agree with that. And I think um, she's correct that she's being targeted, um, you know, in part because of her stance on gun control. And, you know, it's very disappointing. I mean, the point of representative democracy is to allow communities to have effective representation. And I think that communities in the 6th and 7th felt like they were getting that from their representatives. So to have um, a Lucy McBath um, really drawn out, I find is problematic, um, both in terms of representing the districts in Georgia and also in terms of having elected officials of color in Georgia. I mean, I think that we have, we probably have more black elected representatives than any other state. I think this is very important, particularly in a state like Georgia. Um, And so I was alarmed to see uh, Lucy McBath being drawn out of that district. Well, um, Greg, let me pick up on what Adrian just said about people wanting to be represented by someone who they're satisfied with, who, who they believe represents their views. We could look at what's happening to a portion of Cobb County in terms of the redrawing of the 
14th district map, Marjorie Taylor Greene's district now moves down into really metro Atlanta. And there are people over there in Cobb who have no affinity for what Marjorie Taylor Greene is all about and are furious that they are suddenly going to be represented by one of the most extreme, you know, <laughs> gladly extreme members of the United States House. I wrote a story about that a couple of weeks ago, and I quoted the state representative who represents that area in the Georgia House, David Wilkerson, who said um, that no one was happy about that except for the people who who drew those lines behind closed doors. And the backstory is Marjorie Taylor Greene wanted Cobb, but she didn't want the Democratic part of Cobb. She wanted a sliver of Cobb that was north, sort of northwest Cobb that's, that's very conservative. And instead, the, the district was drawn as sort of a C-shape. To include at the very tail end is very diverse, very democratic, one of the bluest parts of Cobb County. She's not happy about it, and the residents of that district, uh, of that area, are certainly not happy about it. And and you know, it's it's and when you talk about the seventh, um, Republicans drew it as we mentioned to pick up that seat. They they drew the sixth district by including Dawson County with the goal of making it conservative for the next decade, not just for the next few election cycles, but in hopes of keeping it in the red column until 2030. And the 7th District was drawn to keep it basically in the blue column the same way. Um, you know, and that's the challenge that Carolyn Bordeaux now faces, because whether or not her voting record still aligns and mirrors Lucy um, uh, McBaths, she has had the centrist stances over the, over the years. She drew the ire of a, a lot of left-leaning groups earlier this year when she raised concerns about passing the social spending bill um, and, and wanted to basically pause those deliberations. And it's going to be hard for her to overcome that. Um, there are active efforts to try to get her out of the race, you know, by finding some way to, to, to have her run for something else or, or not run for the, for the seat at all. She has said no way to that. She has said that she loves representing this district. She's got all these mayors and local officials on speed down and that she's devoted to running for re-election. And you can't discount that whatsoever. But it's going to be, it's going to clash with the narrative that Democrats are loving that's happening right now, which is all the Republican infighting. Well, there could be a nationally watched Democratic turmoil next year as well that kind of conflicts with yeah. that. Yeah, well, Chart, we're talking about your territory. <laughs> yeah, I was at the, uh, the the breakfast yesterday between a bunch of the top legislators and the top chamber of commerce and the school district and all these people. Um, and I was talking to some folks afterward who were just like, you know, the chamber and, and the business community in Cobb, which is, you know, really kind of arguably the most important uh, voice stakeholder, whatever, in the county, um, I mean, their whole thing is, is, you know, we'll, we'll work with, we don't, we don't care if you're red or blue or what, like, we just want to make sure that the, the wheels keep turning, the train stays on the track, uh, you know, and, and it's going to be really, really, um, again, either fun or miserable, depending on how you look at it, uh, to watch, you know, when they have these, these big business summits with the, the congressional delegation and, you know, instead of, you know, um, you know, David Scott and Barry Loudermilk and Lucy McBath, who are all, you know, fairly personable, uh, you know, uh, happy to work with, with the business community on things. Uh, you're going to have a, uh, a real firebrand, as it were, um, stepping into those, those spaces. And uh, I, I think, I don't know if anyone's going to come out and say it, but I think it's probably giving 
a lot of people in that world some very serious headaches. So, Alan, before we have to get to a break, um, let me ask you this question. <clears throat> do, can, do the people of a given congressional district have a right to, at the very least, have the opportunity to vote for someone who perhaps looks like them, uh, thinks like they do? Um, they may not elect that person. In a, in a, probably in the best kinds of districts possible, we have more of a 50-50 split. But these districts are all being drawn. Those people in the part of the 14th that now is in Cobb County are unlikely to have a realistic chance of getting a candidate in there who represents them in any way, let alone win that race. We're exactly right. Um, so I, I think, of course, you can't satisfy everyone. Um, and inevitably, there are going to be voters who are on the losing side in these races. And with the degree of partisan polarization that we have in our country, the people who are on the losing side are probably going to find themselves represented by someone from the opposing party whose views and, you know, uh, and voting record are, are very, very, very different from what they uh, uh, would like to see. Um, so the problem, however, is that what this redistricting in Georgia does is it essentially creates nine safe Republican districts and five safe Democratic districts so that any swings in the preferences of the voters are unlikely to have any impact on the overall distribution of seats. And we've seen this in state after state. For example, in a state like Ohio, where Republicans have drawn lines so that uh, it's almost impossible for the Democrats now to actually win uh, any additional seats. Uh, regardless of uh, what the overall vote distribution looks like. And that, to me, is uh, antithetical to representative democracy. I'm sorry. Uh, Adrian, I know this is an issue that matters a lot to you in your work. I'm just <laughs> so disappointed about the fact that it feels like democracy is getting away from us. Right? I've been a teach American government. We start with John Locke, who's explaining that you're going to sort of turn your power over to a greater entity in order to provide protection and representation for yourself. Um, and I feel like over the last several years, I mean, we're just watching a deliberate deterioration of that. And I think people really should be on edge about this and pay attention to the fact that whether it is your party or the the other party will only have the two, unfortunately. Um, you know, it's happening for Democrats in Georgia now, but this bodes poorly um, for everyone when um, the people's voices cannot be heard. We already have significant um, corporate support of our political uh, system in the state, local, and the national level. I'm saying there's so many ways in which um, individuals and communities are unable to be effectively represented through government. Um, and this makes me extremely nervous. All right, Adrian Jones, you get the last word on this uh, segment of the show. We got a few more issues I'd love to get to, but let's take a break and come right back. Greg Bluestein, uh, you've been keeping track of Jan Jones, uh, who is uh, Speaker Pro Tem in the uh, State House, uh, second-ranking Republican member, and her uh, this um, move that she's making to support a measure that I thought felt like it started out as what many people were calling a book 
ban making decisions about what books could be in school libraries or could be taught. The latest iteration of this, based on a story you wrote, seems a little different. It has more to do with um, her belief that, that there should be a bill that will address access to internet sites, to websites, to social media, whatever, that's inappropriate for students. Is that where we're headed with this? It looks like it. The governor essentially endorsed it yesterday. Um, Jen Jones uh, offered even more detail about it yesterday on, on social media. But really, this is there's two things. First of all, because of the pandemic, there's been an explosion of of students bringing doing school at home, right? Um, doing schoolwork, my kids included, with laptops that were school provided. And uh, there's been more issues, uh, especially with, with teenagers, of, of students going on inappropriate sites. And there's no, it's, it's been hard and challenging for school administrators to deal with this. And so Jen Jones thinks this legislation will help at least set up a process to tackle this. But secondly, this goes back to the entire conversation we've had all this entire hour, which is election year issues. This is something too, you've seen this in Virginia, you've seen this in Pennsylvania, you've seen this in in, in Republican-led counties around the state of bringing up issues about um, certain books that deal with race, gender, sexuality in school libraries. This touches on it, right? This, this is not explicitly about that, but it touches on those issues. Um, and it gives conservatives on the campaign trail a talking point. And certainly you will see Governor Kemp talk about this on the campaign trail, something he supported to, uh, you know, to protect students from from what they what what is what what is defined in, in in the legislature as obscene material, whatever that might be. Well, I mean, we're going to learn no, more about this as be. the. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead, Adrian. I mean, and that's the question, <laughs> Professor. Right? What, what what is obscene? No, that is not obscene, right? I'm saying the that the federal government, the state of Georgia, we have obscenity um, laws that say that you know it's based upon the community standard. Um, the material as a whole has to lack artic artistic value, excuse me, um, and mm. the focus is really on the purient interest, right? We're talking about sex and sex-adjacent <laughs> items. We're not talking about beloved. Um, one, because that is an important piece of art that we generally think that people need to read, and two, because I'm very... <laughs> I'm positive that on the campaign trail, this conflating of a book ban with obscene material, right? This changes the understanding of the entire community about what a book like Toni Morrison's is. I don't know if you've seen the um, stamped by the beginning from Kendi. He does a great history of how, um, for black people in particular, <clears throat> um, there have been, you know, the way that words and descriptions have been interpreted are problematic, which makes you look at people problematically. Um, and I feel like this is what this is designed to do, right? This is not the same so, as the obscenity proposal we saw a couple of years ago. This is a new thing um, that is extremely nefarious. Well, I think it's going to be, Alan, we're going to look to see what the actual language of this legislation looks like moving forward. It feels to me like it's still kind of floating around and yet to be mm -hmm. uh, uh, made more specific. And we're not, based on what Greg reported, this is not quite the same as the Virginia governor's race where Republicans used Beloved, the Toni Morrison Pulitzer mm -hmm. Prize winning novel, as an example of things children shouldn't be exposed to in school. Um, but but now 
saying what are they looking at online. But, but it seems to me that that opens the door. That you can already see the Republican amendments flying that would take the next step and talk about books in schools. Absolutely. I think that there's a great risk um, that something like this um, is, is going to end up uh, expanding uh, and to really uh, become a form where, where we're going to be talking about an effort to censor the kind of materials that students can be exposed to. And keep in mind here with the book like Beloved, we're talking about high school juniors and seniors. We're talking about students who are getting ready to graduate from high school and go to college and whether they should be ex- you know, exposed to literature um, that uh, is uh, part of, you know, uh, of the now, the, you know, literary canon of this country. Uh, and, you know, there's plenty of other literature. You know, this, this could easily veer off into bans, attempts to ban lots of other things, too, you know. And we've seen this in the past. This is nothing new, but uh, it has, a, you know, kind of a new twist. But, but uh, you know, efforts to ban, for example, books by Mark Twain, efforts to, to ban books by... You know, by uh, J.D. Salinger, efforts to ban all sorts of things um, that, you know, that might contain some content that might be considered offensive to some parents. Um, well, if we're going to get go in that direction, I think it's very hard to, to, to limit that and draw the line. And that, that's why I, I think uh, this is getting to very, 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 very dangerous uh, territory. So, Chard, I once again bring this back to you up in Cobb, your work up in Cobb County. You've seen contentious school board meetings over issues like mask mandates already uh, and uh, vaccinations of students. And uh, this just feeds the flames of further uh, confrontations, I would imagine, among parents, school board members. It's, it's not going to be a pretty sight. Uh, I think that's probably a fair statement, Bill. Um, I, you know, I mean, as, as Alan said, this is this is very much not new. Uh, I mean, I, I remember I was in high school and we had parents trying to get uh, Native Son banned from our English classroom uh, and, and plenty of other things. And, and you know, I, I think what the, this comes down to politically is that Republicans are, are very rapidly realizing, especially with how. Uh, successful the whole uh, CRT agitation was over the summer, that that the school is a very, very potent battleground and always has been, probably will continue to be. But especially going into the, the, to next year's election cycle and then presumably on into 2024, uh, there's a, a lot of anxiety in certain parts of the country about you know, what's happening to my children? Uh, you know, what are my children being forced to cover their face with, read, uh, you know, learn in class? And and there's plenty of debate to be had about the merits of those concerns, but the, the um, yeah, they, they've, they've very rapidly identified this as a place where they're, they can uh, make a lot of hay uh, okay. politically. Well, we'll watch that play out when the legislative session begins and certainly have plenty of time to talk about it. Hey, and one last thing, uh, Greg Bluestein, before we leave. Um, there's a good news story, or I think a lot of people will consider it a good news story, from the runoff election. Uh, the other night, the people of Warner Robins, a community which is just about 50% white and only 40% African-American, 
elected for the very first time a female mayor and for the very first time an African-American mayor. Uh, her name is LaRonda Patrick. She's an attorney uh, with the city of Fort Valley nearby. And Leah Fleming on Morning Edition interviewed her, and I want you to hear just a little bit of what uh, the mayor-elect Patrick had to say about her victory. But to know that they put their faith in someone that looks opposite from them, and they've judged me because of my content, they judged me because of my qualifications, and because of my passion, that just warms my spirit to know that in 2021, in middle Georgia, in the South, someone can win based on what we've been working for for decades. Greg? I love this story. You can hear the passion in her voice. Uh, and this isn't, a, you know, Democrats claim victory for this race, but this is really a nonpartisan race, right? Um, and there was a surge in turnout. Uh, she built a, a multiracial coalition to win this election. And uh, we're all excited to see what she can do with Warner Robins um, because there is a lot of um, there's a lot of concern about 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 the current regime there. And, and we'll see if she can live up to the campaign promises. But she certainly has uh, the support and the mandate of her community to do so. Well, it's a it's 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 a great way to finish up today's show uh, after talking about so many issues that are disturbing to all of us uh, right now in our current politics. But our congratulations to Mayor-elect LaRonda Patrick down in Warner Robins. Um, we're out of time, so uh, I just want to thank Chart Riggle of the Marietta Daily uh, Journal, um, Adrian Jones at Morehouse College, uh, Alan Abramowitz. Emeritus professor, relaxed emeritus professor from Emory University with us today, and my Wednesday partner on the show, Greg Bluestein. Uh, thank you all so much for being with us for a terrific conversation today. Thanks, too, to uh, Natalie Mendenhall, to Sam Burmis Dawes, to Jesse Neiswanger, and to Sarah Callis for their work on the show. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to take a look at, at, in a very broad way, at what's happening in rural Georgia. What issues? are people of rural Georgia most concerned about right now? Broadband, health care, uh, farmers having an, enough, uh, getting especially African-American farmers not getting subsidies they feel they need and deserve, and many other issues on the plate for us for tomorrow's show. So I hope you'll join us then. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care, stay healthy. And now, if you haven't had a booster, CDC says that you've got to get one now. So pay attention to them. See you all tomorrow.